Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, Archaeology Podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hey, gang. It's uh, Dr. Alan Gold for episode 118 on your Rock Art Podcast. We're going to have Chris and I bantering back and forth about American Indian perspectivism. This is where we talk about the theology, the, the perspective, and the cosmology of Native people. Welcome to the show, everyone. This is Chris Webster, usually the producer of the show. And, well, at least the guy who sits in the background and just listens and is entertained. <laughs> but today, as you've heard in the past, anytime I come on, that means it's going to be Alan and I. And Alan is going to be telling us about something he's researched, studied, written, is interested in, something along those lines. And today... We're going to talk about Amerindian perspectivism, right? And we've talked about this, actually, this perspectivism concept in a few episodes with Johnny Valdez that we just had not too long ago. Well, we can check those out. We'll probably link to those in the show notes. And then also, if you just search perspectivism on the APN website, you can see some other podcasts related to that topic. And if you want to follow along, Alan's got actually a PowerPoint, but I'm going to put it in as a PDF in the show notes and you can check that out, download it and kind of follow along as we go. I don't, we're not really going to call out slide transitions or anything, but it's, it'll be a nice little reference to have while we're listening to the show. So Alan, why don't we start by just defining for the audience who may not be aware of this relatively academic term, perspectivism. What do we mean by that? What I'm trying to talk about is that the, the Western industrial perspective, they call it Cartesian logic, is rather linear. It's based on science. It's based on certain principles that we espouse. We believe that there is a, you know, a reality to life 
and that science can in fact test this reality and examine it and we can come up with different theories and different facts about the nature of the universe, the nature of our life, and that is the way things are and we like them that way and they seem to be logical and and dependable and able to be uh, tested and uh, proofed. But that is a very different way of thinking completely than most indigenous uh, native societies throughout the globe. And and you prob- you probably have had some familiarity with this, haven't you, Chris? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've interviewed a bunch of people and talked about different societies, past and present, around the earth, and and everybody really does see things differently. In fact, I got to bring this up because we just interviewed Susan Milbrath and Elizabeth Bacadano, and they are co-editors of a volume on. We've, we basically just interviewed them about a new edited volume that they've got out. And Elizabeth did an entire chapter on frogs and toads because it's about beasts and birds <laughs> and things like that and, and, and how they're represented, I know, in Mesoamerican culture. And, and it's just yeah. some of the things that just floor me. Like we, don't, we think we understand some things about rock art, but there's so much we don't. Because like, for example, there's a symbol, like when you have a frog effigy or, or, or carving or something like that down in some areas of Mesoamerica, she was working in like, I think, Central America area, not the Maya, but south of there. And these frogs have like a water symbol on their stomachs. And for a long time, people didn't really know what that meant. They thought it meant it's just like, okay, frogs are in the water. Great. That's that's what that means. But on further study, she, she really got into the biology of frogs and certain frogs in that area absorb water through their through their stomachs through just perme- permeable stomachs they don't really drink it they just absorb it aztecs and, and the people down in the area they knew that they knew that the biology of these frogs they didn't call it biology of course but they watched them enough to know that hey this is going on here and then they would use that water symbol on other things that would represent sort of the the absorption of water if you want to say say it like that and i just it's fascinating to me how much the perspective, as we're talking about, of Native peoples um, was just influenced by their surroundings and how much it's not these days, you know, with us. I mean, it is to some people, but very, very we're influenced by other things, but they were influenced greatly by their surroundings. Yeah. So to start off, to kick it off, what, what makes, I guess, this Amerindian perspective or even global indigenous perspective different? is there's this intimate and direct connection between these people and their environment. Mm-hmm. People and their environment. What I mean by that is the land, the animals, the plants, the cosmos, the natural world and the celestial universe is integrated and unified and connected to the way in which they process and deal with life on a daily basis, which is very, very different from the way in which mm-hmm. our culture today is because we're so divorced from that. We're so segmented and partitioned and insulated. Don't you agree? I do. Yeah, I very much agree. So I think for someone, just a standard run of the mill academician or anyone else trying to understand or appreciate or develop some, you know, if understanding of what Native people are trying to communicate, it's rather difficult to appreciate or understand that, I would say, coming from our particular, you know, perspective. Yeah, for sure. 
since contemporary industrial people are literate, they are looking for words. They're divorced from contact with this environment. We get our food from the market. We buy our meat at the butcher. We uh, get our water from the faucet. We tell time by a clock and a calendar. That is so, so different than than anything <laughs> even even close to the way in which native people process the world. Our homes and offices are insulated, heating and air conditioning. We look at the heavens. We often cannot see the star-filled sky due to light pollution and other considerations. Mm-hmm. We even really recognize the uh, patterned movements of the stars, the moon, and the sun. And when I've talking to, talk to people about that, I talk about a uh, you know winter solstice or summer solstice, and they go, well, what is that? <laughs> Right. Right. So this is this is all part and parcel of we're, we're just scratching the surface. So often native people are connected, tethered to the landscape. They know every nook and cranny, every hill, every every drainage, every spring, every river, every rock is part and parcel of their knowledge. Mm-hmm. And we're a mobile people. And we're not connected to the local geography. We're, we, right. we move about the planet and we don't have a hankering or a association with a particular geographical point on the landscape. That is very, very different. And, and I think the, it, it, the interesting thing about that is, though, like you're right, native, native peoples in general were just intimately aware of their immediate surroundings and probably the region, you know, within, within reason, you know, within walking distance, of course, and everything around there. And while we don't have that intimate knowledge of our surroundings, we have an incredible knowledge of the rest of the world that, that native people just simply didn't have. Like we know about other cultures and other countries and, you know, could probably point them out on a map. And it's, it is a different perspective. I wouldn't say it's a worse one, but it's, it's a different perspective. You know, we're aware of our place in the universe, like physically, not just Right, you know, metaphorically you have, and spiritually. Right, if if you have Amerindian perspectivism, we've got transcultural perspectivism. Sure, that's the terminology. We're we're getting into a global environment and interconnecting with the world on a digital platform. Mm-hmm. But if we but if we take a you know a step back, these Native American, these indigenous religions and religious ideas sometimes are looked upon as primitive, simplistic, silly, naive, etc., etc. But mm-hmm. remember that even our so-called major world religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, often incorporate the exact same spiritual ideas and religious metaphors having their origins or analogs in ancient indigenous religions. Yeah. So the centrality of sacrifice the propitiation to the divine, the cycle of birth, death, and rebirth, a covenant, a formalized relationship, an agreement or contract with the creator, prayer, intercession, metaphors of light and darkness, priests and ritual specialists, ceremonials, first fruit rites. Think about confirmation, baptism, bar and bat mitzvah, quinceañeras, marriage, funerals, etc. So mm-hmm. we're not that far afield from these very different platforms if we try to uh, capture or appreciate the parallels. How's Mm -hmm. that? Yeah, that's true. The concepts of ritual, sacrifice, singing, dancing, oral tradition, covenants of light and darkness, flesh and blood, ritual priests, intermediaries, these ritual costumes, these ceremonial instruments, 
you know, even this thing about caves as portals and to the supernatural and entrances to the ethereal realm, they're not so different from some of the things we've talked about in, in various religions. Mm-hmm. No, they're not. Especially with Catholicism. I don't know why, but mm-hmm. Catholicism seems to have hankered on to some of these principles in a way that some of the other religions have not. But I'm sure that if you look to Buddhism and others, they have you know a similar kind of a connection. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about these cultures... And we're talking about pre-agriculturalists, which of course is most of the period of time when we're dealing with archaeology, subsistence, you know, making a life way, finding proper food, was a direct result of the energies of women and men on their households. They only eat what they were able to harvest or kill. And if there was a drought or a bad season or fire or or some sort of key economic plant such as pinon or acorns or some other staple crop, and it failed, they were, in, they were facing death and starvation. Oh, yeah. Large game animals, of course, could be hunted. You're talking about bighorn sheep, antelope, elk, deer, moose, etc. But they're not so easy to acquire. Not with the kind of technology that was characteristic of most of our prehistory. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so. And I think with that, let's go ahead and take a break and come back on the other side and continue discussing this topic back in a minute. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 118. Alan, continue on. We, we, we ended the last segment there and we were just in mid-thought. So let's keep this going. We're talking about large game animals. You know, you want decent meat packages if you're going to risk your life and, you know, do this kind of work and try to harvest the game and slay these large animals. We're talking about, it's still rather difficult. Mm-hmm. I talk to people who are, who work with, as, you know, the assistance to these game drives or these game where they try to get a bighorn sheep. They're using high-tech technology and it, and it's, it doesn't always work. They can't always get one, <laughs> even though they're around and they know they're there. <laughs> find them right mm-hmm. and then they gotta make sure that they don't they don't see them because if they see them they're they're gone right 
and then they've got to be able to get yeah. close enough to get a shot off and then they've got to be able to kill him. It's not so simple. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult. So it takes skill, patience, thoughtful strategy. They had to know about the wind patterns. They had to know about the, the way in which the animals move. They had to find the animals to begin with. They're not so, they're not so easily found. And mm-hmm. I contributed to a book that just came out about the you know, masters of animals and the spiritual gamekeepers. And this was a concept all throughout the world, through the globe, that there are these uh, supernatural animal-human figures that were uh, deities, supramundane beings that interceded for the people and helped them to hunt the game and kill them. And only if they practiced the proper ceremonies, propitiation, and also did the proper rituals in association before and after, would they be, first of all, be allowed to hunt the animals and kill them? And if they did not do that, even if they hunted and killed the animals, they're not going to get no mo because the spiritual gamekeeper, the animal <laughs> mistress or animal master, is going to be pissed off with them and is going to pull the plug on this cycle that they are responsible for. And the cycle has to do with when yeah. the animal passes away, they have a, a post-mortem ceremony and they showcase the the uh, bones. Sometimes the bones have to be placed in a certain way or cached in a certain way. And then, you know, a special, they have to eat the animal and share the, share the meat in a certain way. Otherwise, they're, they're plumb out of luck. Mm-hmm. The animals themselves were viewed as part and parcel beings at the same level, at the same physiological, interpersonal level as humankind. So what I'm saying by that is that animals were viewed as other than human persons. Hmm. I know that sounds crazy, but that's what it was. They were beings that when animals were people, they continued to be animals now, but, but we lost our animal nature, but the animals kept it. And so mm-hmm. what this is seen as is when you hear about these tribes, these people, they say, well, we are the, you know, bighorn sheep eaters or we're the, you know, we're from the elk people. These individual groups believed that they were descended from a animal human bighorn sheep or an animal human bear or an animal human elk right. and they trace their descent directly from that being as a as a bit of totemism as a bit of animism shamanism is in, 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 incorporated with all that but it is part and parcel of who they are their identity their signature their character is emblazoned upon the land as part and parcel of that animal being and that animal becomes a significant signature of the group okay so for one it might be a bighorn for one it might be it might be a bear or it might be a snake or it might be uh, an antelope and this happens all over the world that these particular animals become an index or a semiotic being just a package of metaphors relating to who these people are, who they are prone to be. And it's they know them in terms of their habits and their habitats. 
They know the intimate elements of how they do things so that they can connect with them, kill them and eat them, but also because they have an intimate kinship with that animal. Hmm. I wonder if you can track, because I was just thinking about certain animals obviously are migratory and definitely Native American groups would follow migratory animals, you know, for sustenance and things like that. But then also, you know, as as things changed and, and maybe tribes got got bigger and, you know, turned into larger entities and, they, and moving was hard, then they would become more sedentary in certain places. And then, you know, maybe maybe deal with migratory animals as they came through, but started hitting more non-migratory game, you know, smaller game that doesn't migrate and mammals I'm talking about, not just birds, but those sorts of things. And I'm wondering if the, the, the like kinship felt with animals can be traced through that sort of tend towards sedentary behavior. You know what I mean? Like as, as the animals change in the symbolism, the rock art and, and how they thought about the world, how that was parallel with, their settlement patterns? Well, they morph, they change. So there's an evolution of changes in the symbolism and the ideology. There's a, a change in the meaning and metaphor, but the symbols can be deconstructed and, and you can see the sort of evolution of how people's beliefs are altered by the changes in their demography and their, in the subsistence basis, in the way in which they're conducting their, their activities in the complexity of their civilization. You can think about it in the sense of thinking about the great high cultures of Mexico who still practiced, you know, a, a livelihood or a, a religious metaphor relating to snakes. And that became mm -hmm. the significant element to who they were and what they were. It was snakes in the sun. It was all about those particular elements that became the hallmarks, the pinnacle of their signatures again and again. Now, those go way back. And so there's a continuous yeah. thread that you can deconstruct and see all the way back to when they were hunter-gatherers and see that same element. It didn't have exactly the same meaning, but yet they were still depicting and using those particular creatures as a means of communicating who they were. Now, the other thing that I haven't mentioned that's rather important here is that if you're dealing with rock art, since we're talking about this is a rock art program, mm -hmm. one of the places that you want to put your rock art is where you see those creatures. You can see them in the rocks. The rocks have shapes. The rocks have, you know, particular forms and the forms of those rocks sometimes mirror the actual forms of the animals. I think back to the creation site in the Tehachapi Mountains where you can see the rabbit, you can see the raven, you can see the, mm. the turtle. They're there plain as, plain as day. Also, right. what you see is this portal, this, this relationship between a nexus that we're going into, we're looking for some means of entering a, another world. And this particular world is a layered universe. So that if you want to go to the animal underworld and ask for some 
help from this animal mistress, animal master, supernatural gamekeeper. You have to do mm-hmm. so through some sort of a clefted rock. So if you're a shaman and you want to help someone do that, or if you want to do that yourself, you want to find a rock that's been broken in two and has a distinctive shape and size and cleft in it. And so if you have a split rock, then you have the possibility of a portal. And that's what that's almost always where you're going to find the rock art paintings, the rock art drawings will be especially abundant and concentrated on these enigmatic, mysterious, clefted rock landforms. Make sense? Hmm. Yeah, that does. It's really interesting. Again, it goes back to the the intimate relationship with the landscape. And, you know, I mean, the human brain has always been an amazing pattern recognition device. I mean, we do it now without even thinking about it. And But we don't do it as much. I mean, you do it when you look up at the sky and you see shapes in the clouds and, and constellations and things like that. But when you just like live outside and you live with nature at all times, you're going to start seeing, you know, patterns where, you know, maybe we wouldn't see them today. And of course, that would be that would be rolled into your perspective. And, you know, you just segued perfectly because I said the timing of the seasons was measured by the move in the stars. Mm -hmm. You see the stars and the stars are beings. They're alive. They're sentient. They have agency. The, f- the first star you see in the morning is Venus, and it's considered to be the morning star. The last star you see at night is Venus again, and that's considered to be the evening star. Those are the twins. Mm-hmm. That's shown that's a bit of a resurrection. It's a rebirth. It's a renewal process. And, the, and those particular stars mm-hmm. are then part of a quinsunk, a fiveness, which is a, a key hallmark symbol for the high cultures of Mexico, the Southwest, the Great Basin, all over the world, they have this interconnection looking at a set of symbols that we've talked about before, sort of this box cross symbol that has to do with connections and the upper atmosphere and the lower atmosphere and the center and the center being a tether, Mm -hmm. a uh, ladder that runs from the heavens to the underworld. And that particular tether, that particular line is known as an axis mundi or the axis of the world. And that is depicted in the rock art. Right. How do you, how do you see it? Well, in the grapevine tradition, you see it as, as some sort of an E and they show the different brackets of the different compartments of the universe, the lower, the middle, and the upper. Hmm. All right. Well, with that, let's take our final break and come back and wrap up this discussion on the other side back in a minute. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 118. We're talking about Amerindian, which is a hard word to say, perspectivism. There you go. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit more about 
you know, astronomy, cosmology, things like that, because I know I've definitely talked to people who, you know, even people who are archaeologists, but they find it hard to believe because of our own perspectivism that Native Americans or anybody around the world could have possibly aligned an entire structure or, or, or city, if you will, or, or even something as small as a, you know, an alignment of rocks to something astronomical like the solstice or, you know, something else that, that is regular and, and predictable. And I'm like, man, if you just live that every single day, again, it goes back to this perspective of just living that kind of thing every single day and being in it, it becomes more obvious than to people like us who, we, you know, there's days when people don't go outside. There's days when I don't go exactly. outside. You know what I mean? Because I don't have to. It's a terrible day right here down in Mexico. It's been yep. 40 mile an hour winds. I went outside once. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I can do that. So there's two sites I want to talk about very quickly. One I've talked about before, it's called Mary's Cave. And if Mary's Cave isn't an archaeoastronomical site, it's, it's mm-hmm. you know, it's nothing. Because the entire roof of that cave is, is, is painted with cosmic elements, you know, it's, it's stars and moons and brights and cosmic this and cosmic that. And so completely enraptured, encased in this particular rock shelter is sort of this cosmological nexus all beautifully ensconced in this cave. And so the archaeologists, when they went in there, one of the first things they did was, wow, this is really quite interesting. And they identified that if you're at that cave during the uh, winter solstice, I think it's sunrise or sunset, be sunrise, and also during the equinox, along the horizon, specifically on the horizon, there's a niche that you can watch and see that sun come up in that absolute niche. And it's there. And that and that's an, mm-hmm. uh, an absolute alignment. And astronomers spent the better part of, I think it was... 20 years studying that site and came up with, you know, much more specific evidence, compelling evidence that this is exactly what's going on there. On Mary's Cave, we often talk about relative dating in rock art. And if you see an animal, for example, on rock art that is extinct, well, you know that the rock art must date to at least that point where the animal existed, right? right? Because they, they would have known about it. Now it's, of course, replicate something like that. Now Mary's Cave, and, and these astronomical alignments, I'm thinking of like Serpent Mound in Ohio, where Serpent Mound doesn't quite line up with the solstice. But if you roll it back to some of the other datable elements there, it does, right? Because if you go back thousands of yes. years, it moves. He was able to reconstruct precisely the years, the particular pattern of years, when mm-hmm. that particular intersection would be precisely manifested. Exactly, exactly in that notch. Right. And it was back to about AD 1500 and a little bit earlier than that as well. So between AD 1000 and Mm -hmm. 1500, that sun came up in that notch just precisely there. He was, he was saying that even given the clarity of the horizon in the desert area, he said there's a green burst (laughs) of, of solarization (laughs) that comes when that sun pops up on that horizon. And he has seen it before, so he he wanted to make that known. Also, on Walker Pass, in the far mm-hmm. southern Sierra, the highest peak in that part of the part of the country, you go to a big split rock up on the hillside, and there is a depiction of the sun coming up over that mountain. Well, if you're there on winter solstice sunrise, as I was with the native people that are descendants of that tribe that lives there, 
lo and behold, that sun just sits right there on top of that peak. And it sits there for about better part of maybe 30 seconds to a minute. And it is precisely sit, sitting on that wow. peak. And this glowing orb, you know, pops up and, and brightens up the entire hillside. It is magnificent. And it, I'd, I'd have to say it's one of the highlights of my life to experience mm. that. Amazing. Wow. It's one thing to really see cool. pictures of it. It's another thing to actually be there and wait in the cold dawn, freezing your butt off, waiting. And when is that sun coming up? Why is this <laughs> light not hit, hitting? It's it's not going to come up. I don't care. You know, let's let's go. And, and finally, it shows mm-hmm. up. You can see it creeping, creeping ever so slowly. Then, boom, you know, this giant orb hits and pops up and brightens the entire yeah. side of the hillside. I mean, talking about perspectivism and how that changes through time, I, I don't know if anybody's actually studied this or not, but if you were to look at the, say, the rock art in one area, and and we know, you know, we can, we can infer that certain, you know, panels and elements are older than others, you know, through various means, but do you know if there's a prevalence, let's take the Koso rock art of like, say, China Lake or something like that, Little Petrogove Canyon, there's so many. Do you see a shift in the focus of the rock art through time? Like maybe there's more animals in this period oh, abso- and more absolutely. Um, you know, astronomical elements during this period and things like that. Absolutely. Okay. That's awesome. The earliest rock art that you see like in the Kosos and they've dated it through associations and other ways to, to date this stuff mm-hmm. is a very deeply gouged, almost sculptural rock art that's completely abstract. And that's, you know, 10,000 years old, at least, minimum. Mm -hmm. Then you get this burst of cosmological wonder where you get these decorated animal-human figures that are mostly female. And there they are. They are just so finely etched, pecked in beauty. They're big. They're effervescent. They're flamboyant. They're they're gorgeous. Mm. And then the next thing is from, from that patterned body, they become solid bodied. They lose the patterning in their torsos and they become solid. And during, mm. after that's when the solid bodies come in, that's when the bighorn sheep hunters come in in a big way. That's when you start seeing them hunting them with otlottles and then seeing them with bows and arrows. And that's the big time for the hunting of bighorn sheep because the bighorn sheep move in there and then they become the dominant element. No more is it animal human figures. Mm. It's the bighorn. So then right. that's the, that's, that's the, the last gasp of, you know, when you get larger than life size <laughs> bighorn sheep and you got this whole repertoire going in there, that's the Kosos. And then of course, after that, you've got scratching, you've got numbing yeah. scratching and, and the embellishment of this and pictographs, paintings that are all over the place that mm. uh, are relatively recent. So there is definite chapters and different periods and different representations and subject matter and characterizations of the iconography, subject matter, and patterns depicted for different periods of time. So Native people often see the natural world as one that's transfixed with power. And that term for power is different in all the different languages of the world, but in the West, they call it puha or buha. And this power, this, this energy, this, this uh, mojo, it was something that was intertwined with everyday life. 
It was something that existed as a tapestry of daily existence. It's something mm-hmm. that places places had power and people had power and animals had power and varying amounts of that power were important. You could acquire power, you could lose power, and it just depended upon who you were and how, how much power you had as to how much influence you might have over the supernatural realm. Hmm. So these these rituals, these sacred narratives, these ceremonials, they were uh, partly about trying to benchmark one's existence and deal with sort of the this animated world, this interconnected ideology, this this web and cycle of life, and everything about you, everything you saw, you tasted, you touched was alive with power. Animals, mountains, rocks, caves, springs, lakes, trees, lightning, wind. They all had life in them, agency. They all were sentient beings. They were not simply a metaphor, but every part of the day and every movement was a reality to these people. They could mm-hmm. they could sense they could sense it. They would they would they would understand or grok or grasp what was going on by, by testing the waters or, or sort of getting a sense of what was going on in this, in the universe when they were walking upon the land. So to wrap up, how does this knowledge of, of perspectivism and, and through time for different Native American groups help archaeologists understand and study them through, you know, through our work? Well, when you see pictures on the rocks, I think you get a much deeper sense of what they're trying to communicate. I think if you can grasp even superficially mm-hmm. anything from what I've said, then you can at least come to some superficial sense, some sort of tangential way of, of at least grasping a minute amount of what is going on in these paintings, these pictures, these panels. They're mm-hmm. not just, you know, brick-brack. They're not just, you know, skittermarink things. They are embellishments and communications of ancient people that communicate who they were, what they were, their passions, their beliefs, their sacred stories, and they're communicating something to us about their world. Hmm. Okay. Well, I think with that, we will call it. This was, this was an awesome kind of wrap-up to some of the perspectivism focused podcast that we've had in the last few weeks or the last few episodes, I should say. And it's a never ending conversation, basically. So take a look at your show notes. We've got the link to the archaeology show, the most recent episode that came out just before this one did. Actually, there's probably two. But anyway, it's a link in the show notes. And then we'll have a link to Alan's PowerPoint presentation on this very topic also in the show notes. So with that, I think we'll see you guys next time. And thanks for listening. Take care, gang. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends.
This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.